What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bright and Jerry Rowland over there. Uh, and this is Stuff You Should Know. Was that a real stare down? Yeah, Jerry won. <laughs> Jerry won because I was like, I don't have time for this any longer. That's pretty funny because that's just sort of all the three of us. You guys are having a stare down over nothing. You're just over there grumpy, like, can we get going? I was just doing my thing, and then all I heard from you was, nice job, Jerry. <laughs> so, like, you conceded. She, well, sure, yeah. You gave it to her. I mean, Jerry won. My friend, uh, Billy, the one who uh, passed away from MS that I talked about. Oh, yeah. He and I used to do a staring contest, but it was a certain face we had to make. Okay. And you had to not laugh. That was our staring contest. Sure. So we both make this certain face that he invented and the first one of us to break and laugh, which was always me. Can you, can I see the face? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. I've retired it. I understand. That's right. Um, okay. Well, thanks for the story. Oh, by the way, very special listener <laughs> mail coming up today, everyone. So stick around for that. Whoa. Sarah, the amazing 11-year-old fan. Yeah. Who's she's, not 11 she's anymore. She's reappeared, everybody. Oh, my gosh. So delightful to hear from her. All right. So, wow. Let's just get through this then. We're I know. We're talking Central Park. Central Park, it's huge. It's in New York. <laughs> the end. It's square. Uh. It's rectangular, Charles. All right. So let's talk about uh, New York in... Uh, between 1821 and 1855, <laughs> All right. the population of New York uh, grew four times its size over that 34-year period. From 15 people to 60. <laughs> and they uh, were crowded, and people started moving further and further north. Well, like, I, like, that was a funny joke I just made, but you just said that the population of New York quadrupled mm. over 30 years. Yeah, 34 years. And— you know, New York started at the south as far as right. people living there and kept going further and further north. Right. And uh, Manhattan-wise. Sure, sure. Yeah. We're not talking about New York State. Come on. No, no, but I mean, there's <laughs> Brooklyn, too. And Poughkeepsie. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, sure. All the boroughs. Yeah. But yeah, we're talking about the island of Manhattan. Right. Uh, and things got so crowded that people uh, would gather in cemeteries to— Socialize. Yeah, that was really weird. So we've talked about that before. We, we like I don't remember what episode it was, but we Some talked of this about stuff. It might have been like, the subways or something. Park or pizza. It might have been tombstones or something. Because we talked about cemeteries being designed to be park like because people would go have picnics and stuff mm, there. Maybe so. All the material that has to do with Central Park makes it sound like that's all they had available were cemeteries if they wanted to go hang out and have picnics in green space. Yeah, so I'm not sure not, if it was involuntary yeah. or if it was designed that way or both. But yeah. they, they, it was either a, a, a tenement or a, a commercial district or the cemetery. That was what you had if you were outdoors. Yeah, and I think, I think it's not necessarily that's all you had, but like maybe all you all. had that was close and accessible. Sure. Like the cemetery is, you know, six blocks from my— apartment. Right. Um, and also, as you will learn, much of, n not northern Manhattan, but yeah, counting northern Manhattan, central Manhattan, right. where Central Park now is, yeah. was gross, 
Swampland. Swampy, rocky. You're not, you're not hanging out there anyway. Yeah, forget the 1820s. Let's go back 2.6 million years ago, Chuck. Oh. There was an ice sheet over New York State um, that was two miles thick. Mm-hmm. And it just so happened to terminate the termination edge, the, the, the well, the edge of it. Sure. Lay, went right through the bottom of Manhattan, went through Brooklyn, and actually like all the heights and hills in, in Brooklyn – that's because uh, th- that's actual hills, right? Because a glacier pushed the ground up there because that's where it stopped growing forward. But as these glaciers were moving down south from the north, they were pushing boulders and rocks and stones everywhere. And where they ended up and then finally retreated from, they left all that stuff, which yeah. is why there are boulders in Central Park. There used to be a lot more boulders there, so much so that the land was just basically considered virtually unusable. Yeah, they weren't uh, – that area was not being developed anyway, which made it, made it a um – a difficult task, but it made it sort of the only place if you wanted to build a 700-plus acre park. Right. That was kind of the, the place to go. Right. And so they did want to build a park because, again, if you wanted to go outside and hang out and have a picnic, you had to go to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. That was basically it. So the people who were living in New York wanted this. But then also the um, upper society, I guess, the super wealthy, yeah. were like, yeah, yeah. This will put our town on the map, man. London's got Hyde Park. Paris has one. All the great cities have a great park, but there's not one in the United States. Let's build it in New York. Yeah, but, you know, that was was later. Like, initially, they there was no call for a park. I mean, it took 40 or 50 years of lots of inhabitants to, mm-hmm. to get this idea. Um, the original city plan in 1811 had no mention of any park. Uh, but for you city planning nerds, I know you know this already if you're a city planning nerd, but John Randall Jr., he was the man who laid out that uh, the grid for New York City mm-hmm. very famously. I saw a documentary on it. Oh, really? Yeah, it's amazing. He drove these iron, I believe, iron bolts into the ground. With his fingers. With his bare hands. Uh, it was a surveying bolt, and it was to map out that that grid, like every block. Can't you see one still? There's one in Central Park that they found. I don't think they found any other ones in Central Park. But it had nothing to do with Central Park because this is like a good 50, 60 years before they even thought of – Yeah. 40 years before they even thought of Central Park. It was like maybe this is part of the grid, the Weird. street grid. Yeah. So there's one in a boulder that um, – I mean, I'm not going to say where it is. Oh, you got to go find it, huh? Well, they, that's, they try to keep it on the down low as far as the actual GPS coordinate. Oh, like I these see. people that hunted it down and found it. It's like a speakeasy, but it's sort really of. just a bolt <laughs> in a stone. It's a bolt in a stone. And you will become the king of New York if you can pull it out. Oh, you should not dare. Nothing should be there for eternity. But there's, there's supposedly more of them. Uh, and there are people that go around and try and find these. It's kind of neat. Yeah, that is neat. So I guess I am a city planning nerd at heart. I have to say um, – I came across a great site called Ephemeral New York that documents, like, all the New York that's been lost and built over and changed mm-hmm. over the time. That's cool. They have a great website. Go check it out because we got some some good stuff from them for this episode. All right. So where we left off before my uh, nerdy segue was you were talking about wealthy New Yorkers saying we want to park. Um, there's a more cynical view that was – we want to park, and that would also greatly increase increase the land value mm-hmm. around the park right. um, where we own houses. Yeah, because just like today, the area around Central Park was very well healed. Um, well, in some places. Right. In other places, not at all. In the place where, this, where what Central Park is now, there was a lot of um, very low-income people living there. So you have very rich people mm-hmm. surrounding very low-income people, which I'm guessing made the low-income people very nervous, and eventually justifiably so, because the low-income people are the ones who had to move to make the park initially for the rich people. Should we go and talk about that? Why not? Seneca Village? Yeah, and well, there's Seneca Village, and then there are uh, largely Irish and German immigrants. In Seneca Village? Uh, well, and all over. Right. Seneca Village is only one small part sure. of, of this immigrant housing that was sort of around the park that, uh, of course, when you know you know what eminent domain is. If the city wants to build the park there, mm-hmm. they're going to get that land 
one way or the other. Yeah, the New York legislature, the state legislature said, yep, New York City, you can exercise eminent domain over that and take whatever land you want. You got to pay them fair market value, which is up for debate if it was actually fair, but those people have to move whether they like it or not. Right. So Seneca Village was... uh, Founded in 1825, there was a couple uh, in 1824 named John Elizabeth Whitehead mm-hmm. who bought no, they owned it farmland. Oh, that okay, all right. I did. Yeah. I thought they'd owned the land for a long time. No, they bought farmland between 82nd and 88th Street, and then between 1825 and 1832 started selling it off. Oh, okay, uh, and they sold 50 parcels of that land, half of which went to uh, people of African descent which was very unusual at the time, to say the least. It was. Um, And so, like, basically out of this, out of this sale of lots over this period of time, the Seneca Village started very quickly. Um, The the people who lived there built a house or a school, um, churches, a couple churches, houses, um, and, like, this village developed, this community. So there's a couple of things that was remarkable about Seneca Village. One, these were um, African-American landowners, which was very unusual at the time because even at this time, slavery was still on the books legal in New York. And these were um, freed or unenslaved African-Americans who owned land, Mm -hmm. which meant if they owned $250 worth of land, they could vote, which would have made them um, like – uh, like there were a hundred African Americans who could vote at this time because that's how that's how how few of them actually own land. Ten percent of those people lived in Seneca Village, so this yeah. is a really unusual spot. But it was also unusual because it was a place where African Americans and uh, European settlers uh, or European immigrants lived together, like lived in this community together. Yeah, um, but I should say you also had to jump through certain other hoops to vote. It wasn't quite as simple as owning land. Uh-huh. Because that would be, um, I guess, too easy for them back then, right. which was, as to say, not easy at all. But they still said, no, there's some other things you still got to do to vote. Sure. Oh, did we land. mention the other stuff too? <laughs> uh, and big shout out to Andrew William. He was the uh, first man of African descent who bought uh, land that would become Seneca Village in September 1825. Yeah. Um, but like you said, it was uh, – Irish and German immigrants moved in there as well, and they were welcomed. And it was, by all accounts, a multicultural uh, society that um, got along well with one another. Went to the same church. Yeah. That's enormous. Pretty amazing. Buried in the same graveyard. There was a midwife there who lived in the village, and she delivered babies of any ethnicity or race. Yeah. Uh, No one knows why it's called Seneca Village. Um, On most maps, it's known as Yorkville. Oh, I thought that was a different place that— The Yorkville people moved up to Seneca Village after they got moved out. Wow, Yorkville. There was another Yorktown. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. But this was on maps as Yorkville, and no one knows if it was a distortion of Senegal or if it might have been code for the Underground Railroad. It's another theory. Uh, Another theory is that it was derogatory somehow because areas where uh, African uh, immigrants would live, they would call uh, bad names of just whatever. I see. So who knows? No one knows for sure where Seneca Village came from, though, the name at least. Gotcha. It was interesting. So it sounds like Seneca Village is great. It was. It must have had fortune smiling on it throughout its time, right? Not true. (laughs) No. So Seneca Village was in the way of this this proposed park, right? So let's get – we'll just go ahead and cut to the chase here. Seneca Village was – they had to move, which is sad because – the community ended then when the when the state and the city moved in and said, "This is this is city land now. Mm. You guys will have to move. Here's some money for your land." Um, the community broke up. It didn't resettle or reform elsewhere. It was like ephemeral, like that ephemeral New York site. It was it lasted for a few decades, yeah. and it was peaceful and harmonious. And then it was gone because they had to move to make way for Central Park. Yeah, it took a couple of years of fighting the law, but eventually the law won out, and uh, and it was a th- this called in this article a violent clearing of Seneca Village, right. um, like they basically sent cops in there with their batons, right, and like physically removed people. Yeah, and there was a uh, a a big kind of um, media blitz in favor of moving everybody out. They were you know derided as a shanty town of squatters and stuff like that. Yeah, despite the fact that. Most of the people who live there or a lot of people who live there own their 
land mm-hmm. in their houses and yep. had for decades then. Um, they were they had just as much right to be there as anybody else, but the the popular opinion of the public at the time was they were just squatting and they should be forced to move, and it was totally justifiable to come in with police batons right. to clear them off the land. Uh, in 2011, the sort of uh, weird silver lining is the Institute for the Exploration of Seneca Village History got permission after 10 years of trying uh, from the Central Park Conservancy to excavate a couple of sites in the village. Mm-hmm. And they went in there and excavated uh, excavated two different uh, home sites. And on one, they found some artifacts, but it was clear that it had been already uh, buried under uh, Central Park, um, whatever, when, been when, like when they kinda, built Central Park. Right. They, they'd already dug it up when they did yeah. Central Park. Yeah. Uh, the other one, though, was original, and they found the original soil of Seneca Village at the former yard of Nancy Moore. Yeah. Pretty neat. And they have... Uh, 250 bags of material to analyze now and soil samples and some artifacts to see what life was really like back then. So pretty cool. So they better get to it. (laughs) That's right. Um, All right, why don't we take a break and then come back and talk about the park. Okay. Is it in Boston now? (laughs) Yeah, what happened there? All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. All right, Chuck. So um, I think by 1853, there had, I think in the 1850s, there was like this drumbeat to have a park. Everybody wanted a park. Yeah, William Cullen Bryant was one of the big uh, names. Who edited the Evening Post, which is now the New York Post. Yeah. Um, and he was a well-known poet at the time and a beloved figure. But he, he definitely used the Post as a platform to advocate for this green space. Now, again, there's a lot of... Um, 
understanding in this day and age that the wealthiest New Yorkers wanted this park for themselves, basically. Yeah. They wanted their new city that they had built to to rival Paris or London, and it needed a park. They wanted to go show off their carriages in the park. Mm -hmm. But they also advocated publicly for the park, for the, the working classes, the middle class, they should have a place to to come and, and hang out. And this is, you know, this is America. Of course, everyone will be welcome. It's a public park. It will be America's first landscape public park. And so people really kind of got on board with this. And by 18... Even though that was kind of a lie. It was, at least at first. Yeah. Um, but by 1853, I believe, work started. There was a central park that had been designated. Land had been designated for the central park by then. Right? That's right. And they had a, a contest. Uh, I believe it was the first design contest in the country, a lot of firsts, mm-hmm. that said, design our park. You got to have uh, a parade ground. Yeah. You got to have a principal fountain. Right. You got to have a lookout tower. Yeah. You got to have a skating arena. Sure. You got to have four cross streets. Okay. Because people still got to get through there somehow. Right. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and a palace. I'm sorry, a place for. Or a palace, why not? For an exhibition or a concert hall. Right. Very specific uh, rules for this design contest that uh, that was won by two gentlemen, very famous now gentlemen, uh, named Frederick Law Olmsted and uh, Calvert Vaux? I'm going with Vaux. Okay. B-A-U-X? So yeah. <laughs> or sure. Vow, Vow or Vaux. But definitely not Vox. Vox. No. <laughs> X is always silent. Um, yeah, those two submitted something called the Greensward Plan, and they won. I like that name. And they won for a couple of reasons. One, um, uh, uh, Frederick Law Olmsted was the superintendent of Central Park at the time. Probably didn't hurt. No. Um, but he wasn't a shoe in I believe his boss, I can't remember like what position his boss would have had, his boss submitted a plan too. Apparently, he and Vo, um, their plan, this Greensward plan that they submitted was just so obviously head and shoulders above every other design that was submitted yeah. that it was just clear like from the outset, yes, these guys should win. And it was it's considered a, a, a work of art still to this day, although they actually went on to design Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Lovely and park. that's supposedly their masterpiece over Central Park is Prospect Park. Mm. I mean, I love them both. Yeah. They're both great. I've never been to either of them. That's not true. No, I swear to God, I've never. I I've, mean, I, I've I must stood have in like, Central Park with you before. I know, but I mean, what we were <laughs> so okay. I, I walked like fifteen paces in Central Park. Right? It was just like we weren't in there for long. Right. That's, that's it. Put, that's that's I've, really the only time. I, yes. Wow. And I've never been in Prospect Park. Boy, I have explored. <clears throat> there's so much of it, but I bet you I've explored seventy-five percent of the bottom. 50% of Central Park. Wow. I, I haven't been over like 86th Street a lot north right. of that. But that's where it gets a little more wild anyway. Um, and not wild like the, the, the parties. <laughs> Coyotes. <laughs> but a little more uh, a little more wild as far as the design goes. Well, Very purposefully. The, yes, right. Okay, I'm glad you said purposefully yeah. because supposedly the bottom half of Central Park, so the, par- the park itself is meant to evoke New York State. The bottom half mm-hmm. is much more urban, refined, um, uh, uh, trimmed. I don't know. Sure. <laughs> and it's meant to reflect New York City. Uh-huh. And then as you get further up in the park, it's a little more wild. There's parties and coyotes a la, you know, Poughkeepsie. You've never been to Bethesda Fountain? I don't believe I have. I've seen You've never been so to the boathouse or the I've skating rink? I've seen so many episodes you of Law like & Order. <laughs> I can't distinguish reality from fantasy. Oh, man. I'm like, so, like, I'm going into my memory. I'm like, okay, turn to your right. Is Lenny Briscoe standing there? If so, then <laughs> this is this. from TV. Well, I've never seen an episode of that, so I guess we're even. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. I don't watch you've, that show. You've never seen an episode of the 10,000 episodes of Law & Order? No. Oh, you're missing out. Yeah. Chris Noth and um, uh, what was Briscoe's name? Jerry Orbach. Those two yeah, together? Yeah. yeah. Benjamin Bratt was a close second <laughs> to the Chris Noth, Jerry Orbach thing. And then it just keeps going on. Like, they were so good at, at 
All of them were just amazing. Yeah. But yeah, a lot of stuff took place in Central Park. So I feel like I've been there. <laughs> Here's what you do, man. Next time we go to New York, I know that we typically stay downtown. Yeah. Um, stay up by the park. Well, that's not And true. then just like get out in it. I've developed a taste for the Upper West Side. But, but, but not the park. <laughs> I like the... Right. You're so close. I will go out. I'll take a helicopter right. over it. I will go out of my way. I like Lower East Side... And Upper West Side are my two favorites in New York and oh, Manhattan. Interesting. Yeah. What, what you like Lower East Side? I like it all, man. Well, I mean, my very favorite part of New York is the West Village for sure. Sure, it's nice. But um, I, I like the Lower East Side. I like it in the East Village. It's a little grungy. It's is, nice. Is there such a thing as the Lower West Side? What is yeah. that, Wall Street? No, like, well, I mean, Wall Street's all the way down. But I would say, like, if— I mean, I don't think it's called the Lower West Side, but like the Meatpacking District. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I like and that like too. like the High Line. That's yeah. probably Lower West Side, There's I would say. There's some really great art galleries in the Meatpacking yeah. District. Oh, man. Boy, when I first started going to New York, that was when it was still shady over there. Uh-huh. And like you would walk through like blocks and blocks of industrial meatpacking plants right. to get to like the one bar that was open that no one had heard of. And then Giuliani so, came in so and, cl- and cleaned the place up. <laughs> well, just thank God for him, right? <laughs> um... <laughs> So the design of Central Park, the Greens Ward. Oh yeah, I forgot. like if we you have so much information to go over. I with. know. Should this be a two-parter? I don't know. Let me ask you: Has our podcast gotten more conversational? This question aside, <laughs> hasn't it? I don't know. Okay, I think think we've always been conversational. Yeah, but I mean, like. This seems like a new pinnacle of conversation. Well, let me say this. I think episodes 1 through 450 uh-huh. were less conversations than sure. 450 through 1200. Okay. But what about <laughs> what about 1200 on? I don't know. All right. Uh, the Greensward plan. If you didn't know anything about Central Park, you may be under the misconception that they just sort of squared it off and rake some things around, and the, and it was like, there's the park. Right. And, like, let's just protect this green space. But it was highly, highly, highly designed. Oh, yeah. And apparently they used as much uh, explosives as would later be used at the Battle of Gettysburg. Supposedly more. To blast away rock yeah. and move that rock. Because and, remember the glacier that moved all that yeah. rock down? That's a big problem when you're trying to build a park. Like, planted hundreds of thousands of trees Swamps that they couldn't drain, they just filled in further to build lakes. Yeah, so it was, uh, and I don't think anyone really thinks that, like, oh, they just walled it up and said, now we have a park. But I don't think I even realized how highly it was designed. Because, and which is probably a testament to their design, because when you walk around, you're just like, it all fits. Right, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Like, they went to a lot of trouble to make it look so naturalistic that... You just assume that that's what the land always looked like. Right. And Central Park is actually a highly managed, highly designed green space. Yeah. That, that exists in a rectangle that when you're in the center of it, from my from what I've seen on <laughs> Law & Order, you can't tell that you're, you're like, in the middle of the city. I yeah, mean, like that's that, the idea. That, like, the, the, the roads, none of them are straight. They're all meant to curve. Um, there's meadows that kind of, like, go out of sight. Yeah. And there's woods, the ramble, like, the whole wood walk mm-hmm. and all that. Um, all of it's designed to just completely take you out of the city and plop you into this this world. But it's just so well done and so natural that it seems like that's just what this patch of land always looked like. Well, and cool that, like, even in an era today where that land is the most valuable land on the planet, maybe, yeah, yeah. that they have protected those uh, – 800 plus acres now yep. and said, you're not, I don't care how much money you have. You're not going to lop off just, no, why don't we start it at 95th street instead? Right. And like, what's it going to hurt? Cause yep. we could really use that area, but no, it is protected. Yeah. Um, uh, did you hear like the, the, the dude bought a $258 million yeah. penthouse on central park? Yeah. So yeah, I can't imagine Most how expensive much that house, right. Is. Ever sold in, in America, in America. Yeah. So uh, Bethesda Mountain. Before we before we leave that beautiful beautiful, um, the fountain work of art. Yeah, Bethesda Terrace. Uh, it is a uh, two tiered. Um, that's kind of one of the cool things. It's like it sits low, and you can walk uh, from from the top half of it and just kind of gaze out upon that and the pond right behind it, and then walk down the stairs mm-hmm. and hear live music almost every 
day of the week, it feels like. Sure. But that was designed um, uh, by Emma Stebbins, uh, an America artist. It's called The Angel of the Waters. Mm-hmm. And she was awarded that commission, a very famous uh, sculptor. And we gotta gotta acknowledge her. Sure, it's beautiful. One of one of my favorite places in the world. I've seen it. They found a body there. <laughs> one of the episodes of Law and Order. So I feel like I've been to the John Lennon Memorial. Strawberry was that with Fields? you or was it with you, me? Because I'm almost a hundred percent certain that I've been to that. I don't know because the only time I definitely was in Central Park with you, I will. Um, we went with a former coworker. Who kind of babysat us on an early <laughs> oh, yeah. mar- marketing trip? Sure, remember that person? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that's the only time it was with us, which so, would explain why you tried to block it from your memory. <laughs> did we go to Strawberry Fields? <laughs> I don't remember. Well, then I believe I have been another time, and it would have been with you, me. Then I think it, we did not, because if I remember correctly, it was more like uh, this other person was just like, "Oh, where can we get a pretzel?" <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> marketing. All right, so back to the the design before we get to the building. Uh, they needed those four roads. Yeah, this is a big one. Which was huge because Olmsted and Vaux, uh, they sank their roads eight feet below the surface of the park, mm-hmm. which really, um, I mean, it doesn't completely hide them, but they use trees and things to sort of obscure these roads so it wouldn't just be like this another just straight, you know, cross street. Right. Uh, and it really blends in nicely with the park. And in fact, one of the lovelier things you can do is drive through the park. I saw that. I didn't even know that you could, but I went on a Google Street view of yeah. <laughs> the road, and uh-huh. I was like, oh, yeah, totally. I get it now. Like, I, I got it from reading it, but then I was like, am I understanding this correctly? And yes, there are sunken roads through the park, yeah. which was another reason why Olmsted and Vaux won, because, like, uh, so a couple other designs that I saw, one was um, all the continents in meadow form. Oh, interesting. Okay. Interesting, but also terrible. And then... Somebody just draw drew a pyramid on a piece of paper and apparently it was like boom, there's my there's my submission. So like they didn't have the most competition, but when yeah. they again, when they were like sunken roads, pyramid. And like meadows and stuff <laughs> like that, it was it was very clear that they had the the right vision. Uh you know the movie Arthur, the Dudley Moore movie? Yeah. They drive through the park at the beginning of that movie. Because mm-hmm. he says, Drive through the park, Bitterman, you know I love Jerry's laughing. <laughs> you know I love the park. Yeah. So um, do you mean Russell Brand? Oh, God. <laughs> you know, Hodgman was in that one. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I never saw it. I couldn't do it. I saw the Hodgman part. Just queued that up? No, I just went to the movies, waited, went in, watched <laughs> Hodgman. <and left. laughs> uh, 20,000 workers um, worked on Central Park. Um, Irish laborers, German gardeners, uh, stone, native stone cutters, native-born stone cutters. Yep. And uh, what did I say? How many? Yeah, 270,000 trees and shrubs were planted. Yep. They moved. At the beginning. They moved like uh, 6 million cubic feet of earth in yeah. and out. That's crazy. Um, yeah. Th- th- just the the number of trees and shrubs that were planted is yeah. just mind-boggling. And um, it was extremely expensive, too. Um, there was something like, a $5 million price tag just to acquire the land. Yeah. Supposedly, that's three times higher than what they projected the actual park was going to cost. Wow. Yeah. So uh, that's like $150 million today. Oh, man. This is at a time when, you know, that was a, that was a bunch of money too back sure. then. <laughs> um, but it was also, I believe there was a financial panic that really made people say like, what's this is a crazy amount of money. What are we doing? But they pressed on. Um, the Civil War broke out during <laughs> during this the construction, yeah. and so construction kind of tapered off for a while. And they went and fought the war, and then everybody came back. And when they came back, they brought with them uh, an understanding of explosives so that they were able to blow away rock a lot more easily than they were before yeah. the war. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, and there is a, a false uh, rumor or a myth that is that uh, – what bridge is it? One of them was supposedly made of cannonballs. Yeah, the Harp Bridge. I can't remember what it was. There's something Bow Bridge. The Bow Bridge, the Bow Bridge. Is it the Bow Bridge? Yeah, it was uh, supposedly up until like 1974, like every book you could read 
said uh, they had giant cannonballs at its found at its as its foundation. Yeah, it's like ball bearings because it was like expanded and contracted so much because of the winters. No cannonballs. Nope. They did a renovation on it. So they're building this thing. Uh, they finally in uh, 1859, in the winter of 1859, is when it first opened for public use. Right. And by 1865, uh, that park received more than 7 million visitors a year. That is a lot. But like you said, that we need to follow up on, at first, they had a bunch of rules in place that <clears throat> kind of kept it for the wealthier New Yorkers. For sure. So like the history of Central Park is actually a history of cra- class struggle in New York, big time. And when it when it opened initially, it was kind of like, thanks for the park, chumps. Appreciate yeah. the taxpayer money. Yeah. Um, and it was uh, like if there was any kind of event or or orchestra or band or anything like that, it took place from Monday to Saturday. Mm-hmm. Because if you were a laborer, if you were part of the working class, the only day of the week you had off was Sunday. Um, carriages were very much welcomed, and they made up something like um, – 50 or 60% of the visitors arrived in carriages. Yeah, in the first decade, 50% were in carriages. But like 5% of New Yorkers were wealthy enough to afford carriages. That says it all. Right, exactly. Um, So basically, it was just kind of like a stay out kind of thing. They had Um, a ban on group picnics. Yeah, that was a big one. So like all these, you know, big immigrant families that love to get together Mm -hmm. in large groups. None of that. Couldn't do it. Uh, Go to the cemetery. You couldn't ride around in a work cart. So like, yeah, like if you had an ice truck. Yeah. Sorry. Like you want to just put your family in it to take them out for a Sunday drive? Nope, none of those. You had to have a nice carriage. So there were always all these rules um, that were enforced for a little while. And then finally, um, the rest of New York, the other New Yorkers said, this is BS. Yeah. Let's uh, let's loosen these up a little bit. And they finally petitioned uh, for some changes. And Central Park finally, in the 1870s, became a true public park. Yeah, like little by little. <laughs> that's when it started to ease on some of these rules. Right. Um, apparently, Olmsted was not a fan of children traipsing all over the grass. Yeah. So he would have been none too pleased with uh, family picnics and all over on the Great Lawn. Yeah. Um, obviously, that changed over the years as well. Uh, and since, you know, mid-1875 and on, it, it's been a series of um, progressive-minded people that have opened up the park and democratized it over yeah. decades and decades. But it's also been kind of this push and pull, like, okay, how much for the people? Should we add some, like— a swimming pool. Yeah, yeah, or like uh, some, like, should we put a, a baseball stadium here? That was a proposal at one point in time. And they're like, no, let's not do, let's not go that far f- toward the people. Let's like, keep what about it. softball fields? Right, and they said, okay, maybe <laughs> one or two of those. And then it would kind of go back, you know, like, um, no, the people have screwed it up a little bit. So let's take it over and, and make up some more rules. And it just keeps going back and forth yeah. between too much for the people and the people are taking it for granted to too strict and we need to kind of loosen it up a little bit. It just kind of went back and forth like that and it's still doing that today. Yeah, and also I think um, like the, the Greens word plan was so revered. It was sort of like the Constitution. It was like for decades and decades they would go back to that original plan and right. think about like, well, this isn't what they intended. Right, the uh, founders. Yeah, until progressives sort of got on board and were like, well, we can actually alter this. Right keep the spirit of the park and just make it more accessible because softball fields are great. There's a really good um, example of all of this in uh, the casino story. Yeah. So there was this thing called the Ladies Refreshment Saloon, I think. It was an original Calvert Vaux building, one of the buildings he built. It looked like um, an upstate New York cottage, a very like a wealthy person's cottage house in New York. It's a beautiful little house. And originally, if you were a woman who was unescorted by a man to Central Park, this was the place you could go and like get a drink and relax and chill out because no men were allowed. It was just the, the ladies' refreshment saloon, right? And then over time, men started to be allowed and it became like an actual restaurant. And then in the 20s, I think, New York got a mayor who was basically a gangster named Jimmy Walker, gentleman Jimmy Walker. And he was 
Not Jimmy Walker. No. Not Dynamite. Different, different Jimmy Walker. Yeah. Um, and he was super in favor of speakeasies and like gambling and all this stuff. And he helped make the casino or the um, this refreshment saloon into what, what was known as the casino. There wasn't actual gambling there, but it was like the hottest nightclub in New York was in this original 1860s building um, in Central Park. Yeah, he said, let's take the ladies' refreshment salon and make it the opposite of that. Right, exactly. And so during the day, it was a, a restaurant that was open to all, but it was basically like a Neiman Marcus cafe where like the prices were so outrageously <laughs> high that the average person couldn't afford this stuff. It was like coffee for 40 cents a cup at a time when coffee was like a nickel everywhere else. So, you know, eight times the normal rate for just a cup of coffee. Yeah. Which it's kind of like, well, it's not good for a public park. But it was open to everybody until night came. And then it was an exclusive nightclub. Like you could not get in unless you were on the list. Yeah. And there was like partying like this for years throughout the Roaring Twenties. And then finally, when Jimmy Walker was no longer mayor, he was toppled for corruption. The casino became a symbol for the people taking back New York and their park. Yeah. And so um, uh, Mayor LaGuardia appointed a guy named Robert Moses, who became the parks commissioner yeah. for decades. That was a big deal. And Robert Moses lobbied to tear the casino down. Yeah, he did a lot. Robert Moses, uh, he built 20 playgrounds on the periphery. Uh, he renovated the zoo that I think had been around since 1871 mm -hmm. and it was and still is very popular. Um, he was the first one to accommodate automobiles. He added athletic fields, mm -hmm. um, benefactors, private benefactors in the 50s and 60s, uh, which was during his tenure, um, helped to contribute to the the skating rink, the Wallman rink, right. uh, Alaska rink and pool, the boathouses, the chess and checkers house. Uh, ball fields on the Great Lawn, like, he, yeah. he really made a lot of changes for, like, the people. Right. So, yeah, they took the park back, and he actually, he was a huge um, advocate for the park, and it had kind of started to fall into decay around the turn of the 20th century, and when he came in in 1934, he just completely turned it around. Like you said, added all this stuff, but also renovated it and basically restored it back to its original glory. And so Robert Moses was great. He saved Central Park. The but, first time. The first time. <laughs> but when he left in, what did you say, 1960? Yeah. Um, the park really started to fall to pieces because there was no champion there, like Robert Moses, but there was also no plan in place, mm -hmm. and a, there was also no money. New York, yeah. basically, the way that I saw it, New York abdicated its stewardship of Central Park. It basically said, this is whatever, we're not paying attention to this anymore, and it went to poop very quickly. All right, well, let's take a break there, uh, and we'll come back and finish up from 1960 to today. Dun, dun. All right, game off. Let's pause here to talk more about Monopoly Go. Because in Monopoly Go, you can team up with your friends for timed tournaments where you work together to build up each other's boards. It's very nice. That's right. And the more you win together, the more awesome prizes you unlock. And there's so much to get. I'm talking about unique stickers that you can trade with friends to complete albums for big prizes, cool new playing pieces to travel the boards with, or hilarious emojis for taunting friends when you smash their buildings or heist their vaults. Plus, Monopoly Go feels new and exciting every day with constantly changing tournaments and challenges, like digging for treasure or a robot pachinko machine. And there's always new timed events that help you win big, like massive multipliers for everything you win or rent frenzies. That's right. There's always something fun to discover in Monopoly Go. So get off the bench and go download it now for free on Google Play or the App Store. Game on! <laughs> You know, true love is always being excited from the first moment you see one another. And every time after that, it's taking long walks together in the summer or gazing longingly into each other's eyes and watching their tail wag when they chase a squirrel in the yard. 
Well, the pedigree brand asked about believing in love at first sight. And honestly, the answer is yes. Uh, As everyone knows from listening to this show, we have pulled all of our dogs off the street that Emily and I have had over the years, either right off the street or through a local shelter and working with them. And they've all become valued family members. And we think they've appreciated it, too. Yeah, Chuck, there is a pedigree loyalty survey that found that 90% of first-time dog owners report having a dog improved at least one of their relationships, and 80% of first-time dog owners are overwhelmingly more likely to have made at least one new connection as a result of getting a dog. And 95% of all dog owners say that the bond they have with their dogs is closer than they ever expected. Not a big surprise. That's true. We all know that adopting a dog can lead to a lifetime meaningful connection and real love can exist between a pet and a pet parent. You got that straight. Pedigree is committed to helping more dogs find loving homes. Opening your home to a dog can help open your heart. And Love at First Sight is closer than you think because it's available at your local dog shelter. Yeah, very important point. You can find love at first sight with the Pedigree Adoption Drive from June 7th to June 9th. And the Pedigree brand will reimburse your dog adoption fees nationwide. That's right. So just visit pedigree.com slash adoption dash drive to learn more and see full terms and conditions. So the park is going downhill uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Um, we mentioned a few reasons. Another big reason was that there was no no ownership. No one had ultimate responsibility. Right. Like I feel like the buck was being passed all over the city. Totally. No one was happy about it, but there was no body in place to say no. This is we got to fix uh-huh. this now. Yeah. And if you look up pictures of Central Park in the 70s, man. Oh yeah. And, I mean, it was like all of New York. It looked like a wasteland. It was like the Warriors in there. Yeah, like these classic places like the boathouse and the skating rink are like graffitied and like— Trash everywhere. It's just hard to believe. Stuff's broken all over the place. The statues are all being vandalized. It's like—it is. It's It's so sad. It is. It's sad to see. But it's also unbelievable to see now that you know what Central Park looks like. Yeah. Just how bad it was in the 70s and 80s. And throughout the 60s, it was actually, it, there wasn't like a Robert Moses champion, and it was starting to go downhill, but it was nothing like it was when they finally in the 70s were just like, whatever, forget yeah. it. And um, there, it was kind of like that broken windows theory exactly of, of like policing, where once once you, once you reach this tipping point, as mm-hmm. it were, um, it just kind of all just turns to garbage. And that's... Central Park in the 70s and 80s was a great example of that. And it was considered like a really dangerous place that you did not want to be no. after dark. And there was that very famous Central Park 5 case. Yeah. And everybody just found it so easy to believe that some teenagers had brutally attacked a woman and left her for dead because it was Central Park. Yeah. I mean, you can't even uh, be in there at certain hours now. Like, they clear the park out. Mm-hmm. Uh and I know this because I spent the night in the park for Shakespeare in the Park tickets. Wow. And you you line up, you hang out and party with people right. in line until, right. I can't remember what time it was, but something like 2 a.m. Uh-huh. And the cops come around and they say, everybody get up. And they walk you in order out onto the sidewalk mm-hmm. right there on, uh, I don't know if it was the east or west side. But they basically move the entire line out of the park, right. and then, then you're sleeping on the sidewalk all night. Okay. And then in the morning, they come back, and they move you all back into the park right. in line. Gotcha. And everyone just does it. Must have been a hell of a Shakespeare play. It was the most legendary. What was it? The Seagull. I never told you about that. The Seagull? That's like Chekhov or something. Yeah, it doesn't mean everything is Shakespeare. It's oh, just, well, uh, Shakespeare in the park kind of <laughs> makes it sound like it would be. No, nah, that's just the name of the program. But it's— uh, this You was, saw The Seagull? Yeah, and it was the seagull with Kevin Klein and Meryl Streep and George and Seagal. John Goodman and Christopher Walken <laughs> wow. and Philip Seymour Hoffman and George Seagal, Natalie Portman. Wow! And I, there was like two more directed by Mike Nichols. It was like one of the most legendary performances ever. I'll bet. And that's the one where I saw uh, James Lipton uh, wearing a Inside the Actors Studio uh, jacket. Oh come on. <laughs> It's like, you don't need to wear that. It's like Glenn Danzig walks around wearing Danzig <laughs> shirts. Did you know that? Oh, I'm sure. Sleeveless Danzig shirts. Yep. 
Uh, so anyway, that's what happens. They they move you out at night, so it's kind of fun. I, I highly recommend everyone doing that at some point in their life. That's a heck of a play, man. Yeah, it was it was really something else. So uh, Central Park is in decay, and in 1974. Um, a man named George Soros, who was uh, <laughs> saves the day, the devil to some people in this country. George Soros and uh, Richard Gilder, um, under working with the Central Park Community Fund, underwrote a management study in 1974 by E. S. Savas, mm-hmm. who was a professor of public systems management at Columbia, and this was a big study that basically came away with two big. Uh, clear initiatives. <laughs> one was like, we need a CEO, essentially. Right. Like one person, one person in charge. Right. So everyone can't go like, I thought he was going to fix no, the thing. <laughs> one person who who has like uh, un, not unchecked authority, but just basically like they're, they're – A boss. Their decision is final. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing was uh, a Central Park Board of Guardians to oversee all this stuff. Um, the guy suggested the guardian angels, but was shouted down. <laughs> oh, man, we should do one of those guys. Sure. Uh, in 1979, though, Elizabeth uh, Betsy Barlow, who is now um, Rogers, was a Yale-educated urban planner and writer, became that Central Park administrator, which mm-hmm. was essentially the de facto CEO that they were looking for. Right. Um, and then she is the one. So many people did so much great work over the years. But she really did. She was the first one to create a public-private partnership um, to get well-heeled New Yorkers involved. Yeah, and they apparently were um, bolstered by early successes. Like, they went in, and one of the first things they did was they created a zero-tolerance policy for graffiti, garbage, yeah. anything broken. If there, if anybody saw anything wrong with the park, you were supposed to phone it in, and they just responded immediately and fixed it. Like literally phone it in, not just phone it in. Right, right, like, right, uh, right. Sure, someone. Yeah, yeah, I'll be right there. <laughs> um, they and they would fix it, and they they it very quickly. It it was that kind of thing where like if the park's already clean, you're probably going to be less likely to litter yeah. or less likely to spray paint. Yeah. But if it's already spray painted, there's already some garbage. You may be a little, and then you hit that like snowball thing. They kept the snowball from ever growing. Yeah. By being just completely vigilant and they attracted a lot of attention and proved like oh this actually will work and so more money started coming in to kind of resurrect the park yeah and in 1980 um she uh brought together a couple of groups the central park task force and the central park community fund to finally merge and create the central park conservancy uh, which was that citizen-based board of guardians that they called for with that initial study so they have a plan in place now. Things are getting way, way better. Uh, and then in 1998, uh, a, an arrangement between the Conservancy and the City of New York um, formalized a, that public-private partnership. Uh, and there was a man named Douglas Blont- Blonsky. Sure. The Blonsk. The Blonsk, who assumed her title of administrator. And he was the one that created this really innovative management Innovative in its simplicity, I think, Uh because he was like, here's what we need to do is we need to make it smaller. So he divided Central Park up into 49 zones. Right. And every single zone had its own gardener and its own staff. Right. And if you look at the size of Central Park, that's like probably a few, two or three square blocks maybe. Sure. Per team. Anybody can handle that. (laughs) But that's the way to do it. You know, you make it smaller. Well, there's also accountability too. Have the accountability at the top. And then ever since then, uh, it's been humming. There's a um, – the big thing moving forward is a $300 million um, – what do you call it? Like a – Like a fund to keep it going indefinitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is funny because that's double the original price in uh, adjusted for inflation. That is funny. Yeah. And in March of uh, last year, mm-hmm. uh, Elizabeth Betsy – Another Betsy. Another Betsy. Uh, Elizabeth Betsy Weinberg-Smith became president and CEO of the Conservancy. And all of these people that do this do it because they love the park. I mean, I'm sure she's paid and stuff, but they're not volunteers. But it's not like – I mean, it's a good position to be in if you want to be among the elite of New York. But all of these people were nature lovers and like park advocates. Yeah, I mean, clearly that's kind of the proof is in the pudding. 
because I mean they they've done a pretty great job in bringing Central Park back, especially if you go look at those pictures from the seventies and eighties, and then think about it today. Yeah, man. Yeah, you see a, a picture from nineteen seventy five, you see a Law and Order from nineteen ninety five, totally different. Uh, I just got one more thing. Let's hear it. Sheep Meadow used to have sheep. Yeah, the tavern on the green, the restaurant used to be where they housed the sheep, and they were put there. Very purposely by Olmsted. To keep the grass cut, but also for aesthetics. Yeah. He said, all this green everywhere, bring in white and black sheep. <laughs> they're like, as opposed to <laughs> You know what's funny is he made, his, he made his, his mark as a, a master landscape designer. He was like a journalist and a farmer. That's what his background yeah. was. He became the Central Park superintendent because he needed a job. Amazing. That was it. I have one last one. The Central Park Zoo started out as an animal menagerie because people would take unwanted exotic pets to the arsenal, and they just ended up starting accumulating pets. I think it started with some swans Mm -hmm. and a black bear cub is how the whole thing started. Wow. If you want to know more about Central Park, there is a ton of stuff. Yeah, it's so much. This could have been a three-parter. Easily. You could do a lot worse than going to ephemeral New York and looking. Or go to the park. Yeah, I guess you could do that. <laughs> um, and since I said ephemeral New York, it's time for a very, very special listener mail. Yeah, this is uh, long, and I, I'm going to make it shorter, even though I've already made it shorter. But you might remember many years ago we had uh, Sarah, the amazing 11-year-old super fan. Yeah. We got a lot of letters from, read some of them on the air. Yeah. Then Sarah disappeared from us. Ghosted us. And uh, in those 10 years, we would remark occasionally, like, whatever happened to Sarah? Mm -hmm. She got in touch last week, and it was literally one of the more exciting emails I've ever gotten. That was great. (laughs) Uh, She says, hey, guys, listen to, uh, can you... Can your grandfather's diet shorten your life? And this is from a while ago. Yeah, that was like 2009 or 10. Yeah, but that was a select episode. She heard it as a select and oh, said, okay. and heard the 13-year-old version of myself get a shout-out. Well, guys, I'm now 21. It's been entirely too long, and I owe you an explanation. Um, she said her iPod broke way back then. <laughs> a likely story. That's like the modern <laughs> my dog ate my homework. Yeah, my iPod broke. So her iPod broke. Um, it took a while to get back uh, to get the uh, smartphone. Uh-huh. Once she got the smartphone, she listened here and there, but she said she was really busy with school. Mm-hmm. She's like, I lost my self-proclaimed title of super fan, even though I dearly loved and admired you uh, the entire time. Um, the fun facts I learned throughout the years also came incredibly handy during my quiz bowl career sure. uh, and throughout high school. So, yes, I am very much a nerd. Ha. Uh, currently, I'm a senior in college, which is even crazy for me to say. I'm back to being a regular listener, and boy, did I miss you guys. I am so sorry we lost touch. Um, she said, I just want to sincerely thank you for continuing this podcast and consistently bringing new topics to light. You were also kind to that a little 11-year-old version of myself. Oh. Uh, you inspired me to pursue every opportunity I was given to learn. You showed me that there is always a story behind everything and that I should always ask questions. Man, she so got it, didn't she? She got it, man. Way to go, Sarah. Uh, That has always stuck with me and greatly shaped the person I am today. It's been amazing to watch you all achieve what you have. Um, So she graduated in 2015, went on to study English and psychology at a small private liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. Uh, She traveled to Ghana. She traveled to Scotland to study literature. Sure. The Scotland Ghana <laughs> joint. Uh, she said, aside from travel, I've had a chance uh, to lead on our campus. I was elected student government president. This is all leading to a, like, hey, this is what happens when you listen to stuff you should know. <laughs> this is advice for kids. Um, weirdly, I have to thank you for spurring the beginning of that leadership. It might seem like a weird thing to attribute to your podcast, but I truly have to thank you for helping develop my critical thinking skills uh, early on in my education. You guys truly fostered... Uh, a mentality within me that education is always a strength. So how about that, man? That's amazing. She's uh, going to grad school now. She doesn't know where. She's applied all over the map, and she said it's a little scary. Oh, uh, you'll do great. She'll do great. She says, I feel like you're all old friends that I've lost connection with, and I'd love to fix that. Sarah. 21-year-old super fan. Thank you so much for getting back in touch. She gave a little picture. She sent a picture. Uh-huh. She's like, this is me now. Yeah. Just yep. adorable. Yep, adorable. I love sure. it. Thank you very much for writing in, Sarah. And I would say if you're like Sarah and you want to get in touch, but 
Nobody's really like Sarah. Nobody. She's the original 11-year-old super fan. That's right. Now turned 21-year-old successful um, fan. Yeah, if this Still. goes as well, one day we will read an email called Sarah the Middle-Aged Superfan. Right. And uh, I will be like... A million. Uh, close to 60, Yeah, which is so weird. I won't be 60. Now you'll be just a few years behind me. <laughs> uh, well, thank you again, Sarah. And if you want to get in touch with us to let us know how we impact your life, we love hearing that stuff. You can go on to stuffyoushouldknow.com, check out our social links. I'm at thejoshclarkway.com. And you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF. 20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. Childproofing people's homes is hard, but Duracell is making it just a bit simpler. Not only are they committed to educating parents, caregivers, and medical professionals about the importance of battery safety, they make the only lithium coin batteries with a non-toxic bitter coating to help discourage children from swallowing them. Duracell even features child secure packaging designed to avoid accidental opening. Learn more at Duracell.com slash power safely. Available on 2032, 2025, and 2016 sizes.